A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Jeff Zanon. Jeff was given the task by John George of Saxony of mediating a peace between Sweden and the Saxons, Unfortunately, despite Jeff's best efforts, diplomacy failed and Sweden's war in the Holy Roman Empire continued. Sorry about that, Jeff. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or click the link in the description below. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the 30 Years War episode 63. Before we start, a huge thanks to all of you for your patience. I've been kind of having a bit of a mare with all this technology stuff between my laptop dying and having to basically commandeer this old family laptop and plug in my microphone and fight with the technology and really, really rely on AVG tune-up. So I'm really hoping that this is sounding all right by, it's according to what Audacity is telling me right now, it seems to be. So hopefully we won't have any technical difficulties and we can just get on with the show. But yeah, it's an expensive time in Zach Twombly's life right now. And I just got that lovely email from Trinity College telling me that the Next installment for the fees is due, and yeah, yay, isn't this nice, having to spend all this money, and still having to find money for a laptop. But enough of my woes, things were much more difficult for people in the 1630s than they are for me now, so I suppose I can't complain all that much. In the last episode, we saw how France spent the initial years of its war. Richelieu's plans for 1635 produced uninspiring results, but it was the year 1636 that truly proved the endurance test, and Spain, in cooperation with the Holy Roman Emperor, threw all it had at the French borders, failing only due to a lack of coordination and a final jolt of resistance from Paris. It had been an immensely close-run thing for Richelieu, but while he wiped the sweat from his brow, his ally in the north had not been given that luxury quite yet, because as bad as 1635-36 to was for the French cardinal, for his Swedish counterpart, Oxenstierna, the experience was far worse, facing down a hostile Germany, a gloomy Swedish council, and serious military and economic disadvantages. One could be forgiven for marking this as the moment of Axel Oxenstierna's fall and of Sweden's retreat. Yet, these things did not happen, and by the end of 1636, Sweden, like the French, had managed to gain a handle on the situation. The question of how she did this is answered, like in the case of France, by the presence of a steely chancellor, 
And in this episode, we're going to delve into Oxenstierna's experience, just as all seemed lost. Without any further ado then, thanks again for sticking with me and this fascinating story, and I will now take you all to late 1635. Few would have envied the position or responsibilities of the Swedish Chancellor. Axel Oxenstierna had been in power nearly 30 years by the time news of the Battle of Nordlingen was received, yet that news had been powerful enough to give the Chancellor only the second sleepless night of his life. From there, it was a matter of picking himself up and his country up from its succession of disasters, which only seemed to grow as the months progressed. By the autumn of 1635, indeed, Germany was up in arms against Sweden, the emperor was even more formidable than before, and her one-time allies in Saxony and Brandenburg were now firmly set against her. Further afield, the Polish foe threatened Sweden with an unaffordable second front upon the expiration of the six-year truce, which had freed Gustavus Adolphus to enter Germany in the first place. That happy time of 1629, when the French helped to broker that Swedish-Polish peace, must have seemed like a lifetime ago to the Swedish Chancellor, since the fall of the Swedish king at Lützen in 1632, the legacy of Gustavus had been the Chancellor's burden to carry. But he was fortunate in perhaps one major area. The Swedish council did not question Oxenstierna's right to lead, and the regency which governed the young Queen Christina effectively handed the reins of government to him. The question was, what would Oxenstierna do with these reigns? Where the Count Duke Olivares of Spain had insisted on the need for the Spanish to maintain their Dutch war so as to pile more pressure on their enemies, Oxenstierna and his colleagues seemed less certain of the utility in continuing the now thankless war in Germany. As a result of this uncertainty, 1635-36 contained many grim predictions for what the future of the war held for Sweden, but it also contained several phases of negotiation, not just between Sweden and its French ally, but between Sweden and its German foes. By summer 1636, Oxenstierna felt moved to return to Stockholm to put some steel into the Swedish council, and news of the victory at the Battle of Wittstock, which we'll talk about later on, in early October certainly contributed towards this Before then, though, before October 1636, Oxenstierna was forced to maintain Sweden in the war, largely by the force of his own personality and his uncompromising vision for what Sweden required before she could extricate herself from the war. The fundamental problem, the historian Derek Croxton wrote, was that Sweden was in over its head. This certainly seemed to have been borne out by recent events, Swedish influence and reputation had peaked at the Battle of Breitenfeld in September 1631, yet the high hopes and grand plans which Gustavus had built and Oxenstierna had inherited moved Sweden to commit far more than she was naturally able and to spend more than she had. Sweden was, in short, puffing out its chest, and they had been for several years, but Oxenstierna was fortunate that this chest was strong, since although it had been built on the talent of its king, Sweden's position in the empire was not so easily removed. For one thing, they still had their armies, and though they were short of pay, the soldiers in Swedish service recognised and accepted that, for the moment, their service was better than the alternatives. 
not least because of the opportunities which it offered to some foreign soldiers. Indeed, one English captain by the name of George Fleetwood entered Swedish service in 1629, and Oxenstierna had been so impressed with the Englishman's service that by 1636, the Swedish Chancellor was sending this man, Fleetwood, on a diplomatic mission to King Charles I, where it was hoped that Fleetwood would be able to obtain some measure of military assistance from the British. At this stage, Oxenstierna had refrained from ratifying the agreement with France and was keeping his options open. This presented our man Fleetwood with an incredible opportunity to distinguish himself, as Fleetwood recognised when he wrote to his father. I met the Chancellor, that is Axel Oxenstierna, on the 26th of October, but the Chancellor, being the next day to return back for the ordering of affairs towards Bavaria and the Palatinate, took me with him on the night's journey to Germany, where he presently gave me my dispatch, with letters to the King in all points that I desired, with so great manifestation of his affection that I could not have expected the like, and gave me assurance that, while he lived, he would be my patron, being very joyful at the good report which he hath heard of my regiment from everyone. Fleetwood had built such a great reputation for himself through his military service that the most powerful man in Sweden had taken it upon himself to sponsor his career. Fleetwood was certainly lucky, many of his compatriots would not rise so high in their station, and British soldiers or officers who couldn't hide behind their high rank suffered a horrendously high casualty rate. This was indeed the story throughout the Swedish army as a whole. Sweden had benefited from its sterling reputation as a foremost military power which Gustavus had built, but even before that king's career captured the imagination of budding adventurers, the likes of King James had shunted off many unwanted Irish levies into Swedish service with the unsentimental note that there will be a good riddance of them all when they are gone. These records all serve to remind you guys that Sweden was fundamentally incapable of raising an army and maintaining it solely on its own power. It didn't have the manpower or the financial power to fight the Thirty Years' War, and this has been the challenge which moved Gustavus essentially to stall for time until he wrested an agreement from the French for subsidies in early 1631. But if you'll recall, this agreement was only supposed to last for five years, and this meant that it would be due for renewal in early 1636. In practical terms, this meant that the Franco-Swedish deal would be renegotiated, and in negotiations, the strongest power with the greatest leverage always receives a deal. Leverage for Oxenstierna in early 1636 was in desperately short supply. All he possessed was an army of dubious loyalty under Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar along the Rhine, and a smaller force commanded by Johann Banner in Pomerania. Little wonder, then, that the advice given by the Swedish council in mid-September 1635 had been particularly gloomy. Discussion as to what is to be written to the Chancellor, and whether it would not be advisable for him, frankly, to pull out of Germany by degrees and devote his efforts to doing it without the loss of security and reputation, and without forfeiting German goodwill. If he can secure something over and above, so much the better. Interestingly, while the desire to exit the war in Germany was palpable, the Swedish statesman here evidently wished for some kind of military victory, 
which would greatly relax the burden that was felt as the minutes continued. The view was that if the Chancellor should win a victory, we may no doubt hope for reasonable peace terms. If he loses a battle, he'll be forced to retire northwards to a place of safety, in the meantime that he can keep in close touch with the French, so that he may shape his conduct according to how things develop. He should make every effort to hang on to the most important places as far as he can. If he can obtain any territory at a possible peace, that will be best, if not to take satisfaction in money, and if he cannot get that, to try every means consistent with reputation and safety to extricate himself from the German business. As it happened, Oxenstierna was moved to engage in peace talks with his former allies in September 1635 at the town of Schonbeck. Here, at least, Oxenstierna was told that neither Saxony nor Brandenburg would make war against Sweden, at least not yet, for although they had signed the Peace of Prague earlier that year and made their peace with the Emperor, John George of Saxony was willing to engage in peace talks to see if Sweden could be removed peacefully from the war first. This, as we have seen, was what Swedish councillors seemed to want as well. It can be said that in these limited negotiations, Oxenstierna did his best. He requested a cash indemnity with the city of Stralsund, and John George seemed inclined to agree. Even at this anxious moment, when a lasting peace with Poland had not yet been attained, Oxenstierna kept his cool when with the Saxon elector. But the demands were still believed to be too high. John George refused to let the talks progress any further until Oxenstierna promised to accept the Peace of Prague, but to do this would have hung Sweden's German allies out to dry, few though they were. This was not how honourable negotiators did business, so Oxenstierna elected to break negotiations off. There could be no confusion over what this breakdown in diplomacy would mean. John George would feel within his rights to make war on his former ally, thus compounding the sense of isolation that Sweden faced. Sure enough, this is what happened, as on the 16th of October, 1635, Saxony delivered its declaration of war in a document full of involutions worthy of the Saxon chancery, as one historian put it. Unwilling to be isolated from his main Protestant ally, George William of Brandenburg followed suit with his own declaration of war in late January 1636. Fortunately for Oxenstierna, he did sign another truce with Poland, thereby avoiding a two-front war, but the price that King Vladislav of Poland was able to demand was predictably exorbitant. After facing down a Russian invasion orchestrated by the Swedes, the Polish king was, understandably, in no mood to operate with mercy, but he was a touch more pragmatic than his father, Sigismund. Vladislav offered to renounce his claims on the Swedish throne in return for compensation, but this was refused, so in 1633 he had renewed an alliance with Emperor Ferdinand and allowed for limited recruiting by the Emperor in the lands of the Commonwealth. By now, knowledge of Gustavus's failed diplomatic initiatives had spread among the Polish nobility, and they were eager to avenge themselves upon the Swedes in their recently acquired Baltic conquests. This is all to say that when the Swedish-Polish truce expired in September 1635, Axel Oxenstierna would not be able to rely on a recalcitrant Polish nobility holding its king back. He had to take the Polish threat seriously, and he sent 20,000 men under the command of Leonard Torstensen to reinforce the holdings in Prussia, 
as a show of force. But, at the same time, Oxenstierna knew that Sweden couldn't afford a German and a Polish war, and Cardinal Richelieu was also mindful of this fact. French diplomatic aid, so useful for brokering the original truce in 1629, came through again here, as Richelieu sent his trusted envoy, Claude Davout, to Stumsdorf in West Prussia for talks. On the 12th of September, 1635, the Polish sword hanging over Sweden was permanently lifted, and a truce lasting 20 years was concluded. Sweden relinquished much of the trump cards it had seized in the recent Polish War of the 1620s, and it can't have inspired Swedish statesmen back in Stockholm that they traded these shore gains in the Baltic for an uncertain war in Germany. Indeed, this apprehension is reflected in the minutes of the Swedish Council, as a meeting on the 9th of October 1635 contained a debate over how to proceed next. In light of the news that peace negotiations with John George of Saxony had broken down, and the expectation that the elector's determination to make war on Sweden would shortly be confirmed, it was decided that a gloss should be put upon it, and the information conveyed in softened terms when communicating the news to the Swedish people. In addition, it was added that Since the elector of Saxony wants to drive us out of Germany by force, it is plain that we must prepare to defend ourselves in particular by providing garrisons and ample supplies for the coastlands, since our main armies are steadily falling back nearer and nearer to the coast. The minutes record that Per Banner, the brother of Swedish commander Johan Banner, then in Pomerania, was of the view that we could not simply get out of Germany, as once the King of Denmark did, and therefore he could see nothing for it but that we must fight This view was supported by Count Bray, who had actually been the main Swedish negotiator at Stumsdorf. Count Bray took an incredibly pragmatic and, one may even say, cold approach to the current military situation in the Empire, stating, We could not accept compensation in money and preserve our honour. If the Crown of Sweden could obtain satisfaction in land, that would be the best solution. In any case, our armies could hardly be paid off for less than four or five millions. It would seem best, therefore, if we cannot reach any respectable agreement with the Emperor, that we go on fighting. If we win a victory, we must exploit it. If we are beaten, then that disposes of the soldiers' arrears, and we can defend the strong places on the coast with the survivors. Yes, it would dispose of the soldiers' arrears, because the soldiers themselves would be disposed of. Yikes. These final days before John George made official his war with Sweden on the 16th of October produced more anxious rhetoric in the Swedish Council. On the 10th of October, one particularly vocal Swede, the court chancellor, Johan Adler Salvius, expressed the view that If it does come to a breach with Saxony, our own German troops will desert us. If our army consisted of French, Scots and Swedes, we could no doubt put up a fight, But as it is, our army is entirely composed of Germans. Conscription at home at the moment is out of the question. The Chancellor, in his anxiety to escape humiliation, is firmly determined to die over there in Germany. But this will hardly do the country much good. We shall be forced to make peace just the same. The burden of defence will be intolerable in the long run. And in any case, peace will have to be made sooner or later. This was a gloomy picture tinted with a sense of resentment towards Chancellor Oxenstierna, who was apparently suspected by his peers of seeking martyrdom to avoid facing the music. 
Oxenstierna was likely aware of this sense of alienation which the Swedish Council felt. As the main director of Swedish policy, it was inevitable that jealousies and suspicion would follow him. Rather than avoid the issue, though, Oxenstierna did return to Stockholm, for good, as it happened, in summer 1636. First, though, the Swedish Council had to digest the news that, indeed, Saxony had declared war on Sweden, and the war in Germany was destined to be a far more difficult affair than they had hoped. Almost immediately, the thoughts of the Swedish Council turned to resignation and a swift exit from the conflict, as they expressed when they gathered on the 23rd of October, a week after John George's shattering declaration. It was considered wisest and best to start a negotiation with the Emperor and extricate ourselves from the German war. If it cannot be done on honourable terms, then let us content ourselves with whatever terms we can get, for the resources of our country are not adequate to the maintenance of great armies. We wage war in Germany as auxiliaries and not as principles. If the principles have now done a deal with the enemy, who can say that we are behaving dishonourably if we cut ourselves off from the whole business? This was the ultimate low point of the Swedish position, when it seemed as though everything which could go wrong did. Not just their enemies, but even Sweden's friends seemed to have it out for them. In November 1635, Bernard of Saxe-Weimar effectively confirmed his decision to switch sides and fight for the French rather than the Swedes. Bernard's loyalties had long been somewhat in doubt, as the man's inherent opportunism and ambition rendered him unreliable, but still, here was a lieutenant of Gustavus Adolphus leaving Swedish service for the promise of greater rewards elsewhere, and who could guarantee that others wouldn't follow suit? Certainly the deal that Bernhard had been offered was generous, 4 million livres annually and a personal stipend of 200,000 livres, so long as Bernhard maintained an army of 12,000 foot and 6,000 horse. Like many generalissimos who came before him, Bernhard was also to be made a landlord at his paymaster's expense. Richelieu promised him the title Landgrave of Alsace and both parties were allowed to remain vague over what that precisely meant. The more important point for Richelieu was that France now possessed a proxy on the Rhine, and France had demonstrated her predominance in the German question. For Oxenstierna, the pill must have been bitter to swallow, all the more so since it advertised Swedish weakness in the face of French strength. Yet, part of Oxenstierna's skill was knowing when to let such slights go. While a lesser statesman might have let it cloud his judgment and impressions of France, Oxenstierna recognised that France needed Sweden to distract the Emperor's intentions, but he also accepted that Sweden desperately needed French help. It was important that he not appear too needy or grasping, but Oxenstierna travelled to Wismar in February 1636 nonetheless, with the main goal of wresting some form of agreement with the French, which would succeed the old 1631 agreement made at Barvalde. We're going to continue with the regular podcast in a bit, History Friends, but before we do, I want to let you know or remind you or tell you for the umpteenth time that this podcast is on Patreon, and if you would like to support it, it will be really, really appreciated, especially in this expensive season of college fees and new laptops, and yes, everything is becoming more expensive, but for just a fiver a month, you'll be getting access to our large 40-plus hour back catalogue of extra content, so if you're a little bit miffed that I'm not as active with podcasting as I used to be because of PhD and all that jazz, 
then this is a great way to keep yourself fed and watered in a historical sense until things go a little bit more back to normal. If you pay for the year, you can get 5% off the end price, and that's always very nice to get some kind of reduction. And it also means the money goes straight to me, and I can put that straight into the kitty for the fees, which, again, very nice altogether. I really appreciate all the support you've given me so far, history friends, and I really can't say enough how critical this podcast is for continuing on in this degree. I'm going into the final year of the PhD now. It's official. And dare I say it, I can almost, almost see the end result when Dr. Zach will be able to talk to you through this podcast in about a year and a half's time. That sounds like ages away. There's no need to wait now. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and take your support of this history podcast to the next level. Now, back to the show. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Go. 1636 had opened optimistically for Richelieu. He had yet to face the grand campaign orchestrated by Olivares, and in spring he was planning new offensive campaigns into Alsace, unaware that much of the year's activity would be spent on the defensive. But Richelieu had by no means succumbed to hubris. He was keenly aware that France needed Sweden in the fight against the Emperor, which was soon to be made official. And so, on the 30th of March, French negotiators concluded the Treaty of Wismar, and by the 11th of May, King Louis had ratified it. This treaty effectively continued the Franco-Swedish alliance and granted Oxenstierna an instant injection of cash with subsidies to follow. 
Interestingly though, perhaps with the concerns of his peers back in Stockholm ringing in his ears, the Chancellor refused to ratify the treaty due to the clause which would have prevented Sweden exiting the war without French consent. Sweden's position, Oxenstierna believed, required that she had the freedom to manoeuvre and she could hardly resume negotiations with the Protestant electors or the Emperor if those parties knew that Sweden could only extricate itself from the war with its allies' approval. Even though he had yet to make it official though, Oxenstierna didn't waste much time announcing the confirmation of the alliance. This served to send a clear message to the Holy Roman Emperor and his German allies that, despite everything, his enemies were not finished yet. It also reached the Danes, who were applying pressure upon the Swedes from summer 1635 to enter into peace negotiations with King Christian IV as mediator. This would have been a gross humiliation for Sweden, and Oxenstierna never intended to accept the offer, but if he refrained from ratifying the Treaty of Wismar as King Louis XIII had done, did that not render the agreement worthless? Not so. The Emperor could not ignore French interference any longer. The French diplomatic corps were expelled from Vienna shortly after the Treaty of Wismar was learned of. As tensions escalated between the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of France, Ferdinand II actually wished to avoid pulling the French into Germany, correctly interpreting the Franco-Spanish War as the major theatre of interest for Richelieu and for France. This was the case, but since the Emperor aided the Spanish as much as France aided the Swedes, an undeclared war had existed since May 1635 anyway. Historians tend to agree that France was at war with the Emperor while also at war with Spain, though some make the point that a formal declaration was never made. Perhaps it was never made because it wasn't believed to be necessary. French soldiers made no effort to avoid conflict with Germans loyal to the Emperor, and an act of Rhine campaign meant that confrontation between the forces of the French king and the Emperor was inevitable. Indeed, part of Olivares' grand strategy for 1636 was to send an army towards Alsace, commanded by an imperial general, Matthias Gallus, and populated by imperial soldiers. It was therefore impossible, as Richelieu well knew, to separate the emperor from the king of Spain or vice versa when the two parties had been actively cooperating since the beginning of the war. There was some good news on the horizon for the Swedes, though. One side effect of the peace with Poland was the influx back to the German front of nearly 10,000 soldiers where they could reinforce Johann Banner, who was then attempting to hold Magdeburg and Pomerania. Banner had engaged in a gradual retreat from the area from May to August, and although his forces had an easier time of it than the French, who were at that point rushing to plug the many holes exposed by the Spanish imperial invasions, Banner evidently did not feel comfortable entrusting his men to stand their ground. Instead, they marched over scorched earth, barren fields and empty villages, passing by the remains of Magdeburg, which was populated by barely 2,500 citizens and had never recovered from its traumatic destruction of five years before. Magdeburg was actually taken by the Imperials in mid-July, to the delight of John George, who had been promised to the city and its bishopric under the terms of the Peace of Prague. By early July, with 12,000 men under his command, Johann Banner had retreated to the town of Verben, the same town where Gustavus had once made a fortified camp, but a lack of resources forced him to retreat further west, rendezvousing with Alexander Leslie, a Scottish commander with 6,000 men of his own. 
Collecting and distributing some more forces into Pomeranian garrisons, Banner elected to stake his position on a battle rather than continue the wild goose chase away from the enemy. If his army would not stand, then they did not serve Sweden any purpose anyway, and as that Swedish councillor had coldly observed the previous year, if these soldiers fought a battle and lost, Sweden would at least have disposed of the soldiers' arrears. But before Banner could dispose of these arrears, Oxenstierna returned to Stockholm in July of 1636, with the goal in reinvigorating the Swedish council foremost in his mind. On the 1st of August, the Swedish Regency Council released a memo commenting on the developments that Oxenstierna had kept them informed of. The memo began with the justifications for restoring their German allies as part of any peace settlement, the so-called amnesty dilemma, which the Swedes felt compelled to agree to, and the Emperor felt unable to accept. This was, among other things, justified by honour, by the desire to maintain the Lutheran faith, to continue the legacy of Gustavus, to preserve the German liberties, and keep the Habsburgs from becoming too empowered, or, gasp, returning to threaten the Baltic again. This was the first option. However, considering several factors, like the high costs of the war and her unreliable allies, it was also declared that The Regency and Council do not consider it either reasonable or advisable that we should in the last resort persist with the war for the sake of others, but that as soon as Sweden was compensated and the soldiery contended, she would exit from the war. Many words were then spent on the amount of money Sweden would be entitled to in the event of exiting the war, and it was optimistically believed the Emperor would grant Sweden some additional harbours as added security. Some concessions, as has been said, may well be made on this point of indemnity, the memo resolved, adding that It is reasonable, rather than to give away at this critical time to deprive the country of its gain and committed to a perpetual war to the advantage of others and the hurt of ourselves. Evidently, Oxenstierna hadn't instilled within his peers a desire to continue the war indefinitely, but the next demand rendered any resolution of the war virtually impossible. It went... But above all things, we must try to obtain the contentment of the soldiery and relieve Her Majesty in the crown of that burden, which should not and must not be placed upon her, since she receives no benefit from them, but rather hurt and extortion. Nevertheless, since it would not be advisable nor honourable to the country to leave the soldiery entirely unsatisfied, the burden must be taken from our shoulders and transferred by agreement to those of the German estates, and on this we strictly insist... This demand for the contentment of the soldiery, however moderate and reasonable it might have seemed to the Swedes, amounted to nothing less than a demand for the Emperor to pay off Sweden's army to disband. According to the promises made by Oxenstierna during the Powder Barrel Convention of July 1635, it had been made plain to the Chancellor that the army's officers would take it upon themselves to invade Sweden and make good their pay through other sinister means if money was not forthcoming. Yet it was impossible for the Emperor to have committed to this idea, and the Swedish councillors cannot have been so naive as to have believed otherwise. As they stated the previous year, the greatest hope for Sweden lay not in alliances, or in the hope that the Emperor would pay their soldiers to go home, but in achieving a military victory which would send a similar message to that of Breitenfeld. The pressure, in other words, would be piled upon Johann Banner, then moving towards Pomerania's lakes, If Banner was unable to grasp this triumph, his army succumbing to defeat, then Sweden would be faced with an impossible choice of the wrath of the Emperor 
or the wrath of their bitter and unpaid soldiery. Mercifully for Oxenstierna, he will be saved from having to make this choice. The road to the Battle of Wittstock on the 4th of October 1636 had thus been paved with anxious predictions for Sweden's future, great fears of how to deal with their underpaid soldiery, and lamentations about how impossible the dilemma appeared to be. Sweden would either be ruined or saved by the sword, and in a bloody confrontation where Alexander Leslie and his Scots distinguished themselves, the day ended with a victory for Johann Banner. The Saxon contingent had been accompanied by the person of John George, but as at Breitenfeld, the Saxon elector fled the field at an early stage. The Saxon imperial force, which varies in size according to the record used, lost an estimated 5,000 casualties from its force of nearly 20,000 to Banner's 3,500 casualties from a force of roughly 17,000. The Saxon baggage and artillery were abandoned to the victors, but the real story, as before, was the effect that the confrontation had. It was not necessarily the most shattering of defeats, but its effects were immediate because the Saxon and Imperials split up afterwards, returning home and plundering their way down the Rhine respectively, and panic began to spread in northern Germany, where George William of Brandenburg determined to evacuate Berlin. After many, many months of anxious troubles then, the Battle of Wittstock was the answer to Oxenstierna's prayers, and it was the foil to the Emperor's string of diplomatic, military and political successes. The tide had apparently been turned, but just as important as what the battle was, was what it was not. Had it been a triumph for the Saxon Imperial Army, we can deduce, having examined the deliberations of the Swedish Council, that Oxenstierna would have felt forced to extricate Sweden from the war, taking his chances with the soldiery. The Emperor would have been in a position to exact revenge on those few German potentates that had resisted him, and only France would have stood shakily against a Germany freed from foreign invaders. However, one imagines this alternative scene would have looked, it must be said that what followed instead was certainly just as bad. Although neither Oxenstierna, nor the Emperor, nor Johann Banner could have known it, the Battle of Wittstock did not only mean a Swedish triumph, it also meant the continuation of the war for another 12 years. As you can see then, we still got quite a lot to cover. We will continue this story next time in episode 64, but until then, thanks so much for listening. My name is Zach, you've been a wonderful, generous history friend or patron, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.